Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Brad Meltzer is in the business of making heroes. It was more than a decade ago that he first started asking himself who his own kids had to look up to. Athletes? Businessmen? Politicians? Brad thought about his own heroes. That led to his series of best-selling books for children, Ordinary People Can Change the World. You might know them as the I Am series. His two new ones are I Am Mr. Rogers and I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They celebrate the series' 10th anniversary. Brad obviously knows how to capture a reader's attention. Each of his 13 novels has been a New York Times bestseller. His latest nonfiction book, The Nazi Conspiracy, made the list too. It's the true story of the secret plot to kill FDR, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. Brad will be at bookstores across South Florida this weekend to present his new works. But first, he's with us. Brad, welcome. I like this because it's a welcome home for me. I it, Well, it's a welcome home, but I feel like we also have to... I, I wish we had the music queued up to play for you, uh, Hail to the Victors, right? Because you're a big Michigan guy. Michigan just won their national championship. Well, I know you and I were just on Zoom face-to-face. You know that I am in a Michigan shirt right now, and as I someone who grew up in South Florida and got to go to the University of Michigan, there is no better way than to go on book tour uh, than saying we just won the national championship. Although I, I don't think my son, I took him to the Rose Bowl, and we went to the Rose Bowl, and then I realized that the launch of I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the same night as the championship game. Oh, no. And I said to my... I said to my son, I don't think I can go. And he said, I don't really care. I'm going without you. And he went. <laughs> he went to the <laughs> national championship. I got left uh, signing books for kids, but it was that was fine by me. It was good. Oh, wow. That is a, that's, a, that's a Sophie's choice, man. I know my, my cousin Felipe Frias, who also went up, uh, who went to Michigan from South Florida, so he can empathize. He was, uh, he was glued to the TV. No one could be near him. I just would send him updates like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm sure you were. Were you doing that too? Were you were you sending your asking your son for updates while you're there signing books? You know, it's funny when when games are on, he won't talk to us. He'll literally watch in a different room. My my daughter and my wife and I are in one room. My other son and and the oldest is because he goes to Michigan. He's a senior there. Won't won't even be near us. But he texted me the entire game, which made me very happy. And I just all my friends invited me to go watch around the city, but I said no, nope, nope. I got to watch alone and focus. I will tell you that the. The signing for the Ordinary People Change the World book signing that night, there was no faster signing I've ever done in 20-something <laughs> years. I was like, here's your book, kid. Here's your book, kid. Here's your book, kid. Get out of here. Best um, wishes, best wishes, best wishes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, but the series is really close to your heart. I mean, um, I, I heard that story about kind of you looking for for you know heroes for your own kids, right? Like these these kids that are now, one of them is a senior in Michigan. And talk to me about about that that impetus, right? Like, what what was it? Do you remember that was there somebody being idolized that you thought this guy really or this woman really is this one? You know, is this, is this who we're holding up? It started with with really my daughter's princess phase, and and we loved her princess phase. I mean, we bought all the stuff, but at some point, I was like, wait, we have so much princess stuff, and we can do better. No offense to anything that Disney does, but. We supported it, but I was like, "Careful, there's, you, there's cool. you you want that Disney money at some point, Brad?" All right, no, and listen, we've done. I am Walt Disney as part of the series, so we not, there's no hate. We love them, but but I just thought we could do better. We can, you know, and I, and I I I credit this whole thing. I really do, and and she'll roll her eyes every time I say it. But I told my daughter about Amelia Earhart when she was little. She was like seven, eight years old, and I said, "Here's Amelia Earhart. She flew across the Atlantic Ocean." 
And my daughter said to me, big deal, dad, everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> she was so not impressed. And then I told her this true story that when Amelia Earhart was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. She took a wooden crate, put roller skating wheels in the bottom, shoves it to the roof of her tool shed, comes flying down the side from the roof, crashes, and you know gets up again. But she later says that that moment when her stomach bottomed out from under her, Amelia Earhart says, I wanted that feeling back again. Wow. And that's the first time Amelia Earhart ever flew. She was seven years old. And when I told my daughter that story, and she's not impressed by much of anything I do, but I told her that story and she was like, I like that story. And I realized that cracked the code for me. When she said she liked that one, I was like, oh, if we tell the stories to kids about these real heroes, but tell them the stories when they were kids. And now it's not just the stories of famous people, but it's what we're all capable of on our best days. And that's where the whole series began. I'm Amelia Earhart. I'm Abraham Lincoln. I am Rosa Parks. It all began with my daughter reacting positively to the story when Amelia Earhart was seven. Well, that that's so much of a message that I've seen you talk about so often that kind of saying like, no one is exceptional, everybody's exceptional. You know, everyone has great, everyone has a great moment that can affect, you know, uh, the world and everyone has a moment, you know, where, where they're completely forgettable. It's that idea that an ordinary person can, can rise to the point to, to affect people's lives across the world. You know, was, I had a, the title of the series is obviously Ordinary People Change the World. We didn't ever have to put that on there, right? We could just call it the I Am series. I am mm -hmm. Rosa Parks. I am Martin Luther King Jr. Everyone will get the idea. But it was very important to me hmm. to have that in the corner of every book because it's my core belief. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how much money you make. That is nonsense to me. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change. And it's funny. I had a very dear friend who said to me, you know, ordinary people change the world. Uh, and they were really confused because, like, these people are exceptional. I'm like, you're, you're reading it wrong. I'm like, the idea is we're all exceptional, potentially. We all have that potential in us. And you don't have to be a Supreme Court justice or fly the airplane across the Atlantic to do it. it in fact, I was so taken by people reacting to it, I put my favorite line about it in I Am Rosa Parks. It's one of my favorite lines in any of the books. At the end of I Am Rosa Parks, it says, I am not a famous politician. I'm not a well-known business person. I'm just an ordinary person. But I'm also proof there's no such thing as an ordinary person. Wow. And that's as as well as I can say it. You know, you mentioned Rosa Parks, and I, I, I can't help but mention that, that that Rosa Parks books for kids, as well as the Dr. Kim, Dr. King uh, I Am book, um, they were banned in, in, in some places. Like this... You know, like there's always these waves, these crests and and um, and naders of of um, of book bands throughout history, and we're, it seems to be we're at one of those crests right now. And those two books were banned. I was stunned to see that on any kind of list. Yeah, you know, this was about a year, year and a half ago in Pennsylvania. The school board there identified, uh, I think, a hundred or so books that were really good for talking to kids about race, hmm. and well. So what they said is, we want to read these books before we give them to kids, which to me is a good thing. You should read books before you give them to kids. That's more than, the, than a lot than some folks who, who do ban books do. They'll just uh, oh, especially these days. You're exactly right. Yeah. And but the fast one that the school board pulled is a year went by, and they didn't read any of the books. 
And these, you know, I am hmm. I am Rosa Parks and I am Martin Luther King Jr. You can read in five minutes. They're kids' books, you know, for ages four to five years old, about 12 years old. Right. And on that list, it's not like they were controversial books. It was Malala's book. It was Ruth Bader, I mean, sorry, uh, Sonia Sotomayor's book. It was the 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 women uh, mathematicians from NASA, from Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. Their book was on there, all these kids' books. And I immediately, so what happened is, is this freeze on books became a ban over a year because mm-hmm. the librarians didn't know what to do. The teachers couldn't reuse them. And I got a call from Fox News and I got a call from CNN and say, both saying to me, you got to come talk about this. This is, this is absurd. When Fox News and CNN both agree, you know something's wrong, yeah, right? Yep. Like someone did it wrong. Uh-huh. So I go down. I go down to the. They they have a bad point. A virtual school board meeting. The, the students in the district said, "Can you come down and help us fight this book ban?" So it was uh, the time of the pandemic. So we went on the Zoom call. I was the first person they asked to speak. The school board said, "We'd like the authors here," and I I read that line from Rosa Parks. I said, "This is what you're, you're denying kids," and I gave this impassioned speech. I thought for sure I had single-handedly saved democracy as we know it. <laughs> and then the students started speaking. And they started saying, how dare you ban these books with people with skin colors that look like me? How wow. dare you ban these books that we love so much? And they gave these rousing inspirational speeches that by the time they were done, the school board re-voted and lifted the ban. And I'd, I was absolutely unnecessary there these kids were the heroes and they truly proved our thesis they were the exceptional ones and i love the fact that even here in south florida they they someone challenged our i am billy jean king book um up by orlando and Mm. and by tallahassee and there's a whole thing triggered and they had to have people weigh in on it and then they had to argue it in front of the school board and then principal had to weigh in on it they had to defend the thing all this stuff happened. The, the school board up there, to their credit, it doesn't happen often in Florida, but the school board voted unanimously to keep our I Am Billie Jean King book on the shelves. They all agreed it was fantastic, you know, Amazing. as a book. And to me, what's absurd is we're still in 2024 and we're fighting book bans. And it's why myself and my friend Michael Connolly and other authors have opened and helped fund an office with our friend Mitch Kaplan at Books and Books to open a Pen America office here in South Florida to keep fighting these book bans because it's absolutely absurd that we're still fighting book bans in, in the 21st century. Yeah, you mentioned uh, uh, Mitchell Kaplan, who's a past past guest here, and he really he recently spun off a part of his independent bookstores to just be a foundation to kind of represent issues like this, issues of, of protecting free speech in books, which I thought is... Yeah, what we're working together... Yeah, and we're true. You know, Mitch gave me my my start, my first signing in Florida. Is that right? I've done every my first. Literally, no one else would have me. And Mitch, I was an unknown author, and Mitch said, "Kid, come in here." I was twenty seven years old. He says, "Bring your book to me." To and I've had everyone else offer me to come sign at you know stores around around South Florida. I've done every single book signing that I've done in South Florida for every book I've done at Books and Books. I will be there again this weekend. But what I love is that Mitch is such a, that store is such a vital part of the community. And Mitch and I are committed to, with this foundation, we're going to try and give copies of I Am Martin Luther King Jr. and I Am Rosa Parks to kids, at-risk kids in the community as well. That's really one of our goals. Our guest today is Brad Meltzer. He's a New York Times bestselling author of thrillers, mysteries, and children's book like his latest, Ordinary People Change the World, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's the whole it's a whole I am series. You've seen them in all the kids' sections. Uh, including at Books and Books, where you will be um this weekend, right? You'll also be um 
at you'll be in Broward, Miami-Dade, and Palm Beach County. So uh, check his check Brad's website uh, for details. Um, Brad, so you you have strong connections to South Florida. I'm wondering when you were down, what time, what stretches were you down here, and, and who were some of your heroes down here when you think about it? You know, I moved my my family. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. and when my dad was 39 years old, he lost his job. Oh and man. It was, it was, and, and my dad, you know, listen, everyone loses their job at some point, but my dad was just, he was bad with money. He had $1,200 to his name. He never knew how to save. And he said, we're going to have the do-over of life in Florida. Wow. Like as if it was a fun game. We, we were playing a game, the do-over of life. And and we came down, we drove down from Brooklyn down here because my grandmother lived here when I was 13 years old. And he had no place to live, no job, $1,200 to his name. We, and it was one of those scary moments, not just where you're scared about money, but it was like safety. Like I was like, where are we living? We, you know, we, didn't, we had to live with my grandmother for months because he couldn't even save up for the security deposit to, to rent an apartment. So wow. we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, my family, my grandmother and grandfather, all in this one bedroom. And how all of us how many were you sleeping guys? on the couch. You and your you we were four. And... There were six. There were six of us total with my wow. grandparents, and it was a one bedroom. We all slept on the sofas, and I mean, it was it, it was a you know a, 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 let's just call it a character making time. And, and we have we we had them, and my grandparents took care of us, so that was a good thing. But when I got here, um, they put me in Highland Oaks Middle School, and if you want to know my first real hero, I found in South Florida. It was uh, a. a my English teacher in ninth grade, a woman named Sheila Spicer. And Sheila Spicer, when I was in ninth grade, changed my life with three words. She said to me, you can write. And I was like, well, everyone can write. And she was like, no, no, you know what you're doing. She tried to put me in the honors class. I had some sort of conflict. So she said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in the corner for the entire year. You're going to ignore everything I do on the blackboard, ignore every homework assignment I give, and what she was really saying was, you're going to thank me later. You're going to do the honors work instead. You're going to thank me later. And a decade later, I went back to her classroom when my first book was published. I knocked on the door. She said, can I help you? I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. Wow. And she started crying. And you know, I said, why are you crying? She said, you know, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. And I said, are you kidding me? You have 30 students. We have one teacher. And, you know, she sometimes we don't even realize the impact we're having on on other people, you know. And this one was arguably, Miss Spice was the most important person in my professional life, but had no idea of her impact on me. So that was my first real hero in South Florida. That is amazing. And your and your first book, like your first published book, uh, it was like it, it was an immediate New York Times bestseller. And like every well, it, well, and every other know, novel that, that has makes, been too. Which is amazing. And I, I, I I trust me. I, I my family buys a lot of copies. I love that. But <laughs> but that makes you know the truth is that's my first published novel. The first novel I ever wrote actually got twenty four rejection letters. There were only twenty publishers at the time. I got twenty four rejection letters, which means some people were <laughs> writing me twice to make sure I got the point. <laughs> but I, I fell in love with the process of writing. That book has never been published. It never was successful. But the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I said, if they don't like that book, I'm writing another. Wow. If they don't like that, I'm writing another. I was 20. I was a 24 year old kid when I got that. So your, and, your instinct was not to, I mean, obviously not to be ham handed about it, but not to give up or not even to uh, try to fix the first one into something that could be published. You just set it aside and said, all right, I'm going to start from scratch. And because I know this is a thing that I want to do. That's amazing. <laughs> 
you know, I have I, my agent was this woman named Jill Neerum who passed away last year. And may she rest in peace. And Jill Neerum at the time, when I got the 23rd and 24th rejection letter, she said to me, um, listen, I can try and get you into a smaller publisher. I can try and get you, you know, it really wasn't self-publishing back then like it is now. Mm. She said, but if I do, you're going to have a track record that's going to be really small. And I'll never forget, she said, but I believe you can do something bigger. So you can try, we can keep trying, but why don't you put the book aside? I like this new book you're working on. Let's see if I can get it to work. And I have faith in her. I re- and it was, the, it was the single most important decision I made was trusting her rather than just ramming forward with my own idea. And uh, it changed my life. The, this, the next book was The Tenth Justice. We sent it out and I got lucky. Someone said yes. And no. we all know it, it can take one person to change your life. And this one editor said yes. And, and yes, it became a New York Times bestseller. But um, that book, my original book, still sits on my shelf, published by Kinko's. Amazing. Have you ever have you ever gone back to it and thought, I'm a I'm a I'm a big guy now. I'm a big I'm a big published author now. Someone will publish this. Uh, have you ever thought about it, or is it you just keep it kind of like a reminder almost? I you know I my, I believe two things. I think I can take everything I know now and make that book a better book. Like mm-hmm. it's like a '57 Chevy. I can take that '57 Chevy and put a better muffler on it, so it doesn't you know roar as loud. I can put a MP3 player in it so it can play your iPhone instead of having an old radio. I can put better windshield wipers on it. You know, you can do all the things to update your 57 Chevy. But when you do, you kind of rob it of its soul. Right. And, and what I love about that first book is it's me falling in love with the process of writing. I love the book. But I, I, I love my wife knows is it's worth more to my kids after I'm gone to go publish it. I love that there's like a mystery book out there. And, and I also believe that I firmly believe this. My job is to put out my best work. I, I know I can go and try and sell that book now, but I don't believe you cash in and, and sell every, you know, Mother's Day card you wrote your mom just because it was a good one. Like you, 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 people pay for my writing, and I want to make sure everything I put out is the very best I can muster. And that book's not my best; it was my first. It was where I was learning it, uh, and I love the fact that it, you know, one day it'll it'll get out there. But today's not that day. You know, I'm curious. I'm I'm picturing this kind of like these moments of that get you to that part. And I'm thinking of you living in this one room apartment with your entire family uh, in Boca, and then going to the University of Michigan, which I know from, like I said, from family members who have gone there. That's a that's a big leap. That's a big expense, and it's a big leap. Where how did that leap come to come to pass? Because that can be such a big that can be such a big moment for you, especially, right? Yeah. No, we were. I was here in North Miami Beach. That was where we were living at the time. The truth was my dad uh, finally started saving for my college when I was a senior in high school. He couldn't like it took him that long. And I took a big swing and applied to Michigan. I wouldn't even then he said to me, I have enough money that you can do one application. I'll give you I think it was like $50 or $35 at a time. And he said, apply. If you get if you don't get in, I'll give you money for another application. So I (laughs) was sending out one application to University of Michigan, took a big swing. My my father should have never sent me there. What he should have done is send me to Florida in in-state tuition and save himself the headache because he couldn't afford Michigan. It, it really, my family couldn't afford it. I was the first in my family to go to a four-year college, anywhere I was going to go. Wow. And my dad, and the only reason that I was able to even get there, just to be clear, mm-hmm. is I gave a fake address to go to North Miami Beach Senior High School. It was the best school around at the time, and I gave a fake address so I could go to this good school. And at this school, 
it was a school where people went to college. You know, my wife went to Harvard from there. So it was a school where, you know, it was impressive. And people said to me, you know, Brad, you taking the PSAT? I'm like, I had no idea what the PSAT was. But I was like, I'm taking it now, whatever it is. And, and that's why I went to college. My father should have sent me to Florida. And instead, I'll never forget, my dad said to me, I, I'm going to get you to this school. I'm going to get you to Michigan. He didn't know how. He's like, but I'm going to get you there. You got in. My job's to pay for it. And to my father's credit, he, he nearly got me there almost the whole way, took out credit card loans, took out everything he could, you know, was was robbing Peter to pay Paul. But he got me through it. May he rest in peace. He, he got me there. Did your dad did your dad live to see some of your success? At- oh, yeah. No, if you knew. My, so my mom and dad passed away uh, 15 years ago and about 12 years ago. Uh, my parents never read a book in their lives. I'm not joking. The, my mother may she rest in peace, read eight books in her whole life. And they were the eight that were out at the time she died. Like those were the only books she ever read. My father, the same. And truthfully, I'm not even sure if he read them or just had my mom tell him what they were about. But my father, if you saw him at like Bagel Cove in Aventura, he would wear whatever new book came out. He would make a bootleg t-shirt of that book. When I was writing for DC Comics, he would make his own Justice League of America hat when we did a TV show, I mean, he would be walking around like a one-man billboard advertising. And and the thing that was great is it was all kind of like ripped off copyright and trademarks because he, you know, he didn't know how to use a computer. So he would just like put it in a, you know, a Times New Roman font. So it would be like the Justice League of America in a font that never existed before, or Superman or Batman in a font you've never seen. So my father was they were very, very proud. He would go into the local bookstores and he would say, I'm here for Brad Meltzer's new book. He's my favorite author. And they're like, Mr. Meltzer, we know he's your son. We know. <laughs> you know, what's funny is my dad, uh, who, you know, in quotes, I'd say he had a sixth grade education, you know, my late dad and my late mom. And he, you know, he always, I don't think he ever read a copy of my book either uh, because, you know, he had, he, he was limited in how he could read and write, but he carried a copy of it in a Ziploc bag in his car. And, you know, <laughs> so when he was meeting someone for the first time, he'd take it out of the Ziploc bag and he'd show it to the person to make sure they didn't get it dirty or whatever. And, uh, and I think there's something about that, right? Like, like that, you know, for everything, like I can hear in your voice, like, man, your, your dad was a guy who maybe didn't have it all together, but he, he wanted to, he wanted to, to do right by you guys. Oh, my dad, let me tell you a story about my father. My father, uh, years before he died, had hip replacement surgery and it was major surgery for him because when my dad was 18 years old, he had knee surgery and he died on the table. He oh flatlined. God. And they brought him back to life. And so now he was in his, he was probably in his 50s or 60s at the time of this surgery, of this knee replacement, of this hip replacement surgery. So he's terrified that he's going to die on the table because he's like, I'm not an 18 year old anymore. Last time I died, what's going to happen now? So he's so anxious that they won't do the surgery until they can calm his blood pressure. They loaded him full of tranquilizers just to calm him down. Finally, when they calm down his blood pressure, they wheel him upstairs and, you know, hour goes by, hour and a half goes by, two hours. They finally come, the doctor comes downstairs and they say, you want to see your father now? I said, I want to see him. And I go in the room. My father's full of drugs, full of tranquilizers, doesn't know where he is. And he opens his eyes. And the first words he says to me, he says, I love you. And then he says to me, I sold a dozen books up there. <laughs> and I, I was like, that's what you're thinking of when you're this close to death? I said, that's what you're thinking of? I said, did you tell him about the paperbacks? 
But that was my dad. And my that that was my dad and my mom. They awesome. would they would sell like your dad. They just didn't have the plastic bag. You know, they you had such you have had and you it sounds like you continue to have because I know you're, you're married and you have kids such strong family support. And I think of this story that you wrote, um, it's on your website. It may have been remind me where it published where you tell the story of meeting your wife because you guys met in high school and you have been you've been high school sweethearts ever since. And there's this great back and forth about how how people receive that when you tell someone that you're married to your high school sweetheart. I love that. Tell, yeah, that was from uh, I, I wrote that in in year one. You know, we didn't know how to promote a, a first time author. Hmm. So my editor went to Details Magazine back in the day. It's not even around anymore. Hmm. And said uh, it was like the you know the young man's GQ. And they said, can you write about it? And I wrote about marrying my high school sweetheart Corey, um, who I met in junior high school, and and then you know dated throughout high school, which is crazy to me. Um, and and I will say, people, when you do tell them, they immediately roll their eyes and you know. They're sick to their stomach as they should be, uh, but obviously uh, it's it's a constant. She's she's a foundation, you know, uh, literally holds up all of it. And uh, I was talking to someone last night, you know, about you know who do you trust in your life? Like what is you know real trust where you feel like you have it? And you know, my wife has since that very first book that got rejected has been editing my stuff. Uh, I put in lots of jokes. She takes them out and says, I'm not that funny, but you know, <laughs> any success I have is, you know, so much comes from not just the work she does on the books, but that belief when I said to her when I was 20 something years old, Hey, I want to write a book. Cause and I started writing cause the job I went to wasn't working out. The guy I went to work with was like, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm going to take you under my wing. And I moved my stuff to Boston, moved everything to Boston to mm. go work with him. And the week I got there, he left the job. Oh, what and job thought, was that? Oh my God. What were you doing? It, it, was a, it was a games magazine marketing job that I got out of college. And he said, come work here. I'll be your mentor. And I got there and he left and I thought, I wrecked my life. I've wrecked my life. So I did what all of us do in situations where we think we wrecked our lives. I said, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> right? I had no idea what I was doing. I told my wife, I'll never forget, I was in a sports bar in Boston and I banged the table with my fist. I said, I'm going to write a novel this year. That's what I'm going to do. And my wife did the very best thing, one of the best reactions she's ever had, is she didn't laugh. You know, she could have been like, what are you talking about? You've never written a novel. You were not even an English major. You were a history major. And instead, she was like, okay, whatever it was, whatever crazy Laverne and Shirley scheme I had, my wife was up for it. And to this day is up for it because I, I should be writing thrillers. That's what I did. And then... I was like, I want to try writing comic books. And they were like, you can't write comic books. I'm like, well, we'll see. And then I said, I'm going to write kids' books. I had kids. And my publisher rejected my own kids' books. Wow. Literally, my publisher said, I don't, you know what? You write good thrillers, but we don't think these books are really going to do anything. I said, okay, we'll see. And I started writing those. And then I started writing nonfiction adult books. And my publisher rejected that one too. I went to a different publisher. I have three different publishers for each one. And I just was like, and not because I'm just a stubborn mule, but because my wife with each one was like, go do your thing. Go do whatever crazy thing you need to do. Well, there's, I, I think that there's such a lesson there, man, about uh, chasing the thing that you're passionate about, even if other people think it's crazy. I guess you just, you just have to convince one person, right? Listen, I, I've done 32 books in the Ordinary People Change World Series. We, and, and from Amelia Earhart to Dr. King and everyone, we've done people who are white, are black, are Native American, are Indian, are Hispanic, are Asian, everyone, every color, you name it, we got it. And 32 people from every walk of life, Muslim to Jewish and everything in between. And they do have a couple things in common, even in their depth of diversity. 
Now, one is, of course, they all help people. But the other thing that I've realized 10 years into this is every single one of them is following what they love. Hmm. And it's hard to admit what you love. When you, when you admit what you love, it's a real risk. Because when you admit what you love, you also risk not getting it. And then, it, and then you know, saying, oh my gosh, I failed. But whether it's, you know, Muhammad Ali loves boxing and Amelia Earhart loves planes and we did I Am Jim Henson who loves puppets or J- I Am Jane Goodall who loves animals, Jackie Robinson with baseball, whatever crazy thing they love that they're passionate about, that's what they push with. And that's why they're successful. And I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, I don't care what you do. Make sure you love it because that's where you're going to have your most success. So for me, that it, it just happened to be writing and, and trying different things. That's definitely that entrepreneurial spirit is within me. I, I wonder who were some of the early people that you saw that chased a, their passion, kind of everything else be damned. Uh, because there's one, you know, it's one thing to see somebody at the at the tail end, like, wow, they're already so successful. But to see someone kind of chasing their passion, was there, who were the people that, that you saw do that, that really made an impression on you? The funny part is, um, I, I don't, I can't say that there was a person where I was like, oh, that's it. That was the light bulb. I don't have that person. Hmm. But I'll tell you this, and this will probably make more sense. Let me tell you how I learned to swim. So I learned to swim because I was at summer camp in upstate New York, and Joey Tusa's younger brother, who was like three or four years younger than us, I couldn't swim in the deep end of the pool, and I saw this younger kid get up on the diving board and jump into the deep end. And I was like, that little kid knows how to swim in the deep end, and I can't swim in the deep end? So you know what I did? I got up on the diving board, and I went to the end. God knows where my parents were at this time, right? I knew there was a lifeguard there, but I didn't know if they were watching me or not. And I and I got to the tip of the diving board in the end, and I jumped. I didn't jump straight out. I'm not stupid. I jumped diagonally toward the wall so I could at least like get closer to the wall. And I just paddled for my life. And I learned to swim right there. And this is how I learned to ride a bike. I saw Ellen Nagel's dad taking off her training wheels. And I was like, can you take off my training wheels again? I don't know where my parents are in this story, but that's, and I saw it take them off. And I was like, if Ellen Nagel can ride a bike, I'm gonna learn to ride a bike. And I remember her dad pushing her from behind. And I was on, it was like a, a, a long uh, incline, like a hill on hmm. the back of our house. And I just went to the top of the hill, <laughs> no one pushing me, and I just took off. I didn't crash, and I learned to ride a bike. So each of those things, I can't say that I had like someone who said, oh, you gotta follow your dream. But for me, it wasn't it wasn't an example. It was just a necessity. That was how I had to do it. That was how I learned to. And my and I will say my dad did do that. My dad, when when everything went bad, he he took his jump. And our jumps, even with writing, I'm not I'm not crazy. I took my jump, but I wasn't like I risked everything to become a writer. Hmm. I went to law school because I I didn't want to have my dad's job. I didn't want to have my dad struggle. So I took my leap off my diving board. But I did jump a little bit to the side. You know, I made a calculated leap. And and I do believe, and I've told my daughter this, and I believe it with all my heart, I, I believe life is a trapeze and you have to leap. Our guest today is the author Brad Meltzer. He's a New York Times bestselling author who's in South Florida presenting his latest children's book, Ordinary People Change the World. I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He's in town this weekend for his book tour. He's hitting up stores in Broward, Miami-Dade, and Palm Beach counties. Uh, check his website for details. Um, Brad, I'm, you know, we talked so much about people that have inspired you to, to leap and, and you have this great recollection for these moments of, of those first times. 
And I think about the series of books that you read that are inspiration for kids. And uh, w- the latest one about uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's it's probably one of the few people who was living and and maybe you had a chance to meet, right? Did you you personally knew her? Yeah. So you know when we did, I am Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall helped with her book. Oh. Same thing with I am Dolly Parton. When we and and Oprah Winfrey. When we did, uh, I am Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King spent two hours on the phone with me, correcting every color shoe she was wearing in every different tennis match. She knew them all. She wanted them to be just right. Amazing. It's obvi- It's obviously harder to reach Abraham Lincoln and George Washington <laughs> when we do their books without a seance, right? Without the seance, right? <laughs> but. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the only hero so far who I knew before we were writing a book about her because her daughter was one of my professors in law school. Oh. And as a result, I got to meet her. She was very kind to me over the years. In fact, one of the uh, we did events together and one of our dear one of my dear friends was one of her clerks. And when the clerk got married, she asked for the witnesses to sign her wedding certificate, her marriage certificate. She asked Justice Ginsburg and myself to be the witnesses who sign. Wow! So we're we're in the back room, and my you know my friends in her white dress, and Justice Ginsburg signs the wedding certificate. And I looked at my friend, and I was like, uh, "Do you really need me at this point?" I mean, I think she's <laughs> kind of got it covered, but she was always very kind to me, and uh, and I love the fact that you know I we get to write this book. My one great regret is I never got to tell her we were doing a book about her. Wow. She's um, you, in the course of your work of telling these stories, like it's really plotted a course for you. Like you really have gotten to to meet some of the really great, great people across the country and across the world. And I, and I remember this story you told. It's really moving and people can just Google it. Um, it's you're one of a group of authors that was asked to come in and read to um, uh, the, the late president, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And he was like not on his deathbed, but he was he was near his death, and you read to him, right? Like that was that must have been that feels like such an out of body thing. Oh, absolutely! They were bringing in some of his favorite authors, and when I got the call, my wife and I went. We were in Kennebunkport, Maine. The Secret Service leave the room. They tell me he's going to fall asleep because he's sleeping most of the day now, and. Secret Service leave. It's myself, my wife, President Bush, and his service dog, Sully. And I could look at him. I know it's the end. And I say, sir, you want to read this book? He had a copy of my book, The First Conspiracy, about a secret plot to kill George Washington. He and President Clinton had both given me blurbs on the book. They liked the book. I said, sir, you want to read this one? He says, mm-hmm, because he can't speak anymore. It's just mm-hmm or uh-uh. And I'm reading to him, and sure enough, five minutes in, he falls asleep. Just like they said. They said he's going to fall asleep in five minutes. I'm like, no problem. And I'm just trying to finish the chapter. And the chapter I brought to read was the moment where George Washington uh, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops for the very first time. And I get to those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And President Bush's eyes pop open and he's wide awake. And I get to the end of that chapter and he's awake. I say, so you want to read another chapter? Mm Mm-hmm. Get to the end of that. And another? Mm Mm-hmm. And another? Mm Mm-hmm. And instead of being there for five or ten minutes, I was there for an hour. And I said goodbye to him. I knew I'd never see him again. And to be able to read to the oldest living president at that time about the very first president of these United States is one of the most humbling moments of my life. I can't possibly ever think we're going to have these experiences. They just sort of, you know, kind of Forrest Gump my life in that moment. Yeah. 
But what strikes me too is that with a lot of these kind of extraordinary folks, um, the former president, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you saw them as ordinary people in ordinary moments. I, I, I'm, I'm just struck by, by that, by that feeling that, you know, a lot of people, we only see this maybe two-dimensional character if we're lucky. Um, talk to me about some of those, those moments, like when, you know, uh, the notorious RGB was just like uh, was just like the little Jewish lady, you know, that that you got to meet. Were there moments like that? Yeah, that really- of course, of course. I mean, she, I remember she called me up once you know, on the phone, and she was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I can't make this event." I'm like, "I didn't think you were going to come to the event. I invited you out of a courtesy." And hmm. she's just, you know, someone's bubby at that point. I just was on the Today Show with her granddaughter, um, who came on the show with me because she loves "I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg" as a book, and she calls her bubby. I love the fact that she calls her Bubby and she says, everyone makes a big deal. She's like, I, you know, you grew up in your grandmother's house. I grew up in my grandmother's chambers. Like it just, it's a Supreme court, but it's no different. And, and I, and I do think, you know, I, I didn't think of this when we started the series. I can't say I have my head around this, but I've realized, you know, we do a disservice to our heroes in this country. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we build these granite monuments of them, carve them out of, you know, we make statues and we, we put them in Washington DC and even here in Miami and we, and we worship at their feet and we turn them into kind of these lowercase g gods. Mm. But anyone you look up to, whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or whether it's Amelia Earhart or Abraham Lincoln or anyone in between or anyone personal in your life, anyone you look up to have moments where they were scared and terrified and didn't know if they could go on. But they do. And to me, I love the fact that I get to see and, and you know, it's funny. You struck me when you just said, oh, you get to see him in human moments. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't walk around being like, I am the Supreme Court justice who helped all the women. Like, that's not her life. Her <laughs> right. life is like, I'm doing my job. And it's cool. And, and, and the thing that's really fun is all those people think it's cool that they're doing it. You know, her granddaughter right. told me the story that when she finally got to meet Kate McKinnon, they were they were at a play. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg's in one row. And I think right behind her is Kate McKinnon. And RBG is like, Oh, that's funny what you do. Like she laughs because it's a funny <laughs> joke because Kate McKinnon's the funniest. Right. So it's not like these people are robots. I, I know, you know, Congressman John Lewis was our advisor on uh, I Am Martin Luther King Jr. when we did that book. And he told me one day that he's like, man, I, I really like your Rosa Parks book. You know what people have told me they like our Rosa Parks book? I'm like, you knew Rosa Parks. <laughs> like you march with Dr. King, but he's just a guy who was reading a book and likes it like anyone else. And, it, and, and I... I said to him, can you be our advisor? You were the one marching with him. And again, one of my great regrets, I never got to tell him that we did I Am John Lewis. But I love the fact when we tell these stories, and again, credit full back to my daughter, I didn't know it. I was in the mode of like, tell the story of their most famous part. Right. It was my daughter inadvertently cracked it open for me, and I realized, no, the best part of the story is the human part. Because that's the part that is inspirational. That's the part that everyone can identify with. It's not even that's inspirational. It's the part that we experience too. Mm-hmm. And then these people are just us. And and again, I know it's so silly. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we think of her as this austere Supreme Court justice. But when she's a little kid growing up in Brooklyn, she just wants to have adventures, right? She wants to climb trees. She wants to climb to the roof of the building. But it's a time when girls aren't supposed to do that, hmm. right? You can't do that. You're a girl. Girls can't do that. It's her mother who breaks that stereotype. Her mom takes her to the local library, tells her every Friday afternoon they go to the library. You can pick out five books, Ruth. 
And among the books that young Ruth Bader Ginsburg loves the most are books about real heroes. Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman, and later in her life, she loves Anne Frank. And in those moments, she gets one of life's great lessons. There's absolutely nothing that a girl can't do. And that's not a lesson she learns in law school. That's a lesson she gets from her mom, right? And, and that's how you make change. And, and that's all these books are for us. She, she, of course, makes change through the legal system. We take our ordinary people, change world books, and we just use those books as a way to make change. And, and you know, again, it's, it's the most human parts to me that are always the best parts. You know, I think that what makes your writing so powerful and that people identify with so much is the research, right? Is the details. It's the details like in, you know, uh, in, in journalism, obviously, it's all you have is you have to work with these facts. Otherwise, you have nothing. Um, and talk to me about that, about your this hunger for information. And um, talk to me about, you know, some of like how you go about researching some of the most interesting research you've done for books. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting research for me, um, it's so funny because everyone's like, how'd you find that was a great mystery. And I'm like, it's in their autobiography. It's just in chapter one through three, and we don't read or focus on that part. We're all trying to get to the to the part where they become famous. That's what we're all trying to do. I mean, we did this scene in I'm Jackie Robinson, and it was a moment where Jackie Robinson, when he's a little boy, gets into a, um, a, a, a literally a rock fight with with a neighbor because the kid, you know, he gets an argument with a girl, and, and the girl's father comes out, and they basically start cursing, you know, the yelling at each other and they start throwing rocks at each other. And it's such a human moment. And someone came to me and said, you know, where'd you get that story? That's an incredible story. How'd you unearth it? And I said, it's in Jackie Robinson's autobiography. But you're so focused on looking at when he hit a home run in his second at bat, you skip the part, the most important part, which is how he got there. And, you know, for you, for me, and listen, what do we do on this, the first half hour we were talking is you're asking me who I was when I was a kid. You show me who you are when you're a kid and I'll show you exactly who you are. I just do it with famous people. And and was that was that what you were doing? Were you reading voraciously? Because really, that ultimately, that's what it comes down to is is uh, is good reading comprehension and and reading a lot. It's not even. I don't even think it's. I, I can't say I have the best. It's not the reading comprehension. You know, Elmore Leonard, may he rest in peace. Had he said the way to make a good book is you got to skip the boring parts that everyone likes to gloss over and skip over. <laughs> right. Skip the and boring it's brilliant. parts, right? It's, it's skip the boring parts, right? But it's yeah. brilliant. But that's the answer. That's what we do. The one thing I know how to do, I'm not, you know, I'm sure there are so many be better, you know, there, there are great writers out there who have written about all these heroes. But I think one of the things we've been able to do is for kids, find the parts that aren't boring, right? I mean, I had someone on the internet two days ago Wrote, and we've gotten so we've gotten you know blurbs and things written about us from U.S. presidents, from senators, you know, famous people like Victoria Beckham uses our books as 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 baby gifts, hmm. like ridiculous stuff over the years. But this one person wrote on the internet two days ago and said, "This is the only book series for kids that actually has kids in mind hmm. and what they like." And I was like, "That's maybe my proudest blurb we've ever gotten." And I think the one thing that we are good at is just finding the parts that kids like. And, and it's very hard to change an adult's mind. But we have now got 7 million books in print. We've been doing this for 10 years with the I Am series. And we are building a little army of do-gooders who are learning perseverance and kindness from us. And you know what? I like our odds. 
And I, I like the ways that you that you um, are able to reach different audiences. Like you're talking about writing the parts that are interesting, and and nowhere is that more important than in comic books. And you've you both written for comic books, and you started a, a comic book company, right? Yeah, so uh, you know, I've written Superman and Batman and Spider Man, and I love doing that. You know, when I when I get to write the words B A T M A N and put words in Batman's mouth, I'm wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants that day, <laughs> right? It's just the best. It's a great day at work. And then we started our own company called Ghost Machine. Uh, our first book is going to be coming out at the end of the month, uh, and it's basically a company where we own the characters now, instead of you know DC and Marvel own theirs. We were like, we should own them, and I love doing that too. But all these stories whether it's the thrillers or the nonfiction or Superman, it all goes back to, you know, let's talk about comics for a moment. The most important part of the story is not Superman. The most important part of the story is Clark Kent hmm. because we're all Clark Kent. We all know what it's like to be boring and ordinary and wish we could do something beyond ourselves. And, it, you know, if you've listened to anything that, you know, we've been talking about today is proof that we can all do something beyond ourselves. You don't have to go out there and fly the first you know, airplane across the Atlantic. You don't have to go and be a Supreme Court justice to change the world. You just got to be kind to one person, be nice to one person. It's like Sheila Spicer taught me in ninth grade. That kindness, that thank you, you know, is uh, that saying you're good at something is a power that you have. And I encourage you to use it because, you know, if time fades and your power fades with it. But anyone out there who took a chance on you, go say thank you today. Go track them down and say thank you. Uh, you won't believe what comes from it. I, I remember thanking Miss Spicer years later when she finally retired. Uh, and it was one of the great moments of my life is to be able to thank that person who changed my life. You know, I'm thinking about kind of what's what's next for you. What what you're obviously a guy who is who is uh, voracious in your in your writing. Um, what what projects are you working on that you can talk about? Yeah, so um, obviously we, I'm working on the next thriller. I've done The Escape Artist and, and The Lightning Rod is our character, Zig and Nola. It's a, a bunch of books with the same character. And so I'm working on the third in that series. And that'll be out hopefully uh, as soon as I finish a draft. We just did the secret, uh, the Nazi conspiracy about a secret plot to kill FDR, Stalin, and Churchill at the height of World War II. And that came out in paperback yesterday. So you can go buy that for yourself. And I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg for your kid. But the next book that will actually be out is uh, there's two that are coming very soon. Um, one is You Can Change the World. It's mm -hmm. a, that's literally the title of the book, You Can Change the World, where we took the 10 years of heroes that we've done. We pulled the best heroes out and the best advice and put them into one book. It's almost like a graduation present or a birthday present you can give. Of, of you know, It has Rosa Parks in there and you know uh, Abraham Lincoln and Amelia Earhart and Muhammad Ali, and it's just the best of. And then... When the Olympics hits, we'll be our next hero, and we're doing I Am Jesse Owens. We'll be the next hero. And I can't believe we're still fighting Nazis or book bans in 2024, but here we are. And so uh, our I Am Jesse Owens book is is obviously designed to counter that and show people the power of what was then the fastest man alive. Well, Brad, keep talking to us about it. Um, when you will be talking about your books, you'll be you'll be uh, Saturday at uh, Barnes and Noble in Boca Raton, and Sunday you'll be at the David Posner Jewish Community Center in Davie, uh, and then it um, you'll be at uh, uh, Books and Books in books Coral and books in Miami on Saturday. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us, Brad. Thank you, and thanks for all you've done at WLRN to bring ideas to people in our community. It means more than you know. Our guest today was Brad Meltzer. He's a New York Times bestselling author of thrillers, mysteries, and children's book. His latest in the Ordinary People Change the World series is 
I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's Sundow for Thursday, January 11th. Leslie Obaya-Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Coming up next week on the program, we'll talk to the filmmakers behind WLRN-TV's latest documentary, Never Drop the Ball. It's about the unforgettable legacy of the Negro Leagues in baseball. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.